the Christian church. For one thing, and this will be the first slide, one-third of the world's population say they are Christian. Second slide, furthermore, the number of unreached peoples is about one-third of the world's population. You say, why is that significant? Because back, and this will be the third slide, back in 1974, it was clearly brought out that one half of the world was unreached. Today, only one-third is unreached, according to Ralph Winter and Bruce Koch uh, in their book, Finishing the Task. They go on to conclude with these words, and this would be the fifth slide. For the first time in history, there are fewer non-Christians within the unreached peoples than there are within the reached groups. As missionaries succeed in establishing church movements in more unreached peoples, that is exactly what you would expect to happen. Now, unreached peoples refer to people that are living in tribal communities and places that have never heard the gospel, not places like Europe or Australia or other places where uh, clearly there has been and continues to be a gospel witness. As the figures demonstrate, we are in the final era of missions. For the first time in history, we can anticipate the completions of the missionary task, which is to establish an indigenous church that is a church that's native to the people, planting movement within the language and social structure of every people on the earth. Most of us living in the Western world today don't really get too cranked about those kind of figures, do we? When we think of living in the golden age of the church, we're not thinking of unreached people groups. The truth of the matter is, is that giving to world missions is down. And it's way down in many churches that are extremely large. No, our unreached people groups continue to decline. That isn't what really turns our crank. Our measure of church success is not focused upon reaching unreached peoples and cultures. It is focused upon the church in the civilized world and the culture that the church has created. When we think of living in the golden age of the church, we're thinking of unparalleled growth and expansion of the church in the civilized world. We're thinking of churches with congregations that number in the thousands, 10, 20, 30, 80, even 100,000 in some churches. In fact, I read that every two and a half weeks, another 2,000 plus church is born providing for every conceivable need that people think they have. This would be the next slide. We are thinking of influence. We are thinking of pastors and Christian leaders who have reached celebrity status. We are thinking of churches and ministries whose budgets are the size of many corporations. We are thinking of the proliferation of ministries, music, and advice that are projected before millions of viewers watching a TV monitor or sitting in front of their TVs at home or listening to the radio as they drive to work. 
people captivated by the Christian media that is everywhere. I go through and I turn my, my station and it's amazing how often you get a Christian message. When we think about living in the golden era of the Christian church, we are thinking of endless numbers of books, captivating slogans and images, spectacular testimonies of the miraculous and supernatural, servants of Christ imbued with the power to heal, the power to proclaim God's Word without ever cracking open the Bible as prophets, the power to speak in the tongues of angels, We are thinking of the creation of a Christian culture, a culture that is so vast and powerful that it toppled a presidential candidate in the last election and sent the other to the White House. We are thinking of the civilized church and the culture that is shaping the minds and hearts of Christians and even non-Christians around the world. And the more we hear and the more we read and the more we see, the more convinced we are that God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in our midst. As one research, Christian research consultant put it this way, he explained it, Oh, how God is saving civilization. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. Are we living in the golden age of the Christian church? To answer that question, I would invite you today to return to another period of church history. Another period of time in which God, the Holy Spirit, was indeed very much at work in the life of the church. In fact, it was the period when he created the church and put it clearly on the map of the civilized world. I invite you to return to this period of time and journey with me through a book that tells the story of how the church began and flourished in the eyes of God by every measure of God. That book is the book of Acts. And I'm dedicating the message this morning to all of you who are planning on being a part of the Bible studies on Monday night, the women's Bible study, or Tuesday night, the men's Bible study. And if you are interested, by the way, in becoming involved in that and haven't signed up or indicated such, please see me right after church and I'll give you some material that I think will be helpful to you in uh, getting you ready for that. The book of Acts. The book of Acts. How many of you have read through the book of Acts once or twice at least? Most everybody here. So you're familiar with the content. There's perhaps no book in the Bible that has been more quoted and we might add, more abused than the book of Acts. Abused in the sense that people use it to prove things or to justify things in the church, to prove that God is at work in the church or in a ministry that is surrounding the church, a parachurch ministry. And the book of Acts is always that place where people go. As I mentioned before, I grew up in the church of Christ. And I'm convinced that my family has one verse in the Bible that they continually refer to. Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That verse is like a cornerstone for the Church of Christ movement that 
is very strong in the South and the Midwest. The method is fairly straightforward. Simply look for the things in the book of Acts that stand out in the early church. And then seek to reproduce or look for those things in the church or ministry that we're a part of. Or the day in which we're a part of. And then we can be sure God is at work because we see the same things going on today that were going on in the first century. When we Christians think of the early church and the book of Acts, and what we think of may not always be correct. But given that, usually we think of things like this. We think of passages that speak of large numbers of people becoming Christians at one time. We think of spontaneous baptisms. We think of new believers speaking in tongues or languages that they've never learned. We think of meeting and praying in small groups. We think of observing the Lord's Supper every day. And toward the end of the book, they were observing it once a week. We think of sharing possessions and a sort of Christian communism that marked the church early in its beginning. We think of little organization and structure. There was a lot more freedom and authority in worship. Authenticity, I should say, in worship. We think of frequent healings and miracles and other signs and wonders that clearly show God's supernatural presence. And above all, we think of a church that's on fire. When we think of the church in the book of Acts, we think of a church that was on fire. By church there, I'm speaking of all the churches together in that time. And so if we want to justify a ministry or prove that God is at work in a church or a church age, so to speak, even in the whole evangelical Christian world, then these are the things we should look for and the things we should strive to produce. Right? Well, not necessarily then what should we look for as evidence that God is at work in our midst? What might be the indicators that God is greatly prospering His church or His ministry today? When you take stock of a church in the age in which we live, what are the things that really count with God? Turn, if you will, to the book of Acts, and I've written out some of the things that we'll be looking at on your note sheet today. As you can sense, this is probably going to be a little bit of a, a more in-depth message. And so I, I really beg of you to try to hang in there with me because we do have a lot to cover and that I want to take you through the book. Thirty years after the church began and the dust settled, Luke, the beloved physician spoken of by Paul, set out under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to write a very careful and accurate history of the spread of early Christianity. However, as you read the book of Acts, you quickly become aware that his purpose went beyond simply giving us names and places and events and facts and details. He was not writing a history textbook on Christianity. He wanted to explain the who's and the why's and the wherefore's. He wanted to get to the bottom of something and make a point. That's why he wrote the book. And he wrote it very carefully. Very carefully. 
It is common in that period of time. Remember, paper was very expensive, and the process of writing anything was very complex and very difficult to find a place to write, the time to write, and it all had to be done by hand, and it was very, very demanding. And so when a person sat down to write something, they just didn't scribble off a note like we do, and that doesn't mean that's wrong. But it's simply, they had to take their time and they really thought it through. And you'll find that as you go through and look at the various uh, other authors of various books at that time, and there are some that are on slide seven there, Josephus, for instance, wrote his history of the Jews to justify God and Israel after the war of A.D. 70 when Titus destroyed the Romans, destroyed Jerusalem. Plutarch and Levy use it to teach morals. Tacitus writes as an aristocrat longing for the grandeur of Rome. In other words, history was written for a purpose, not just simply to give facts and to satisfy a thirst for knowledge. A person who was a historian sat down and wrote a history with a purpose. And that was the case with, the, with Luke. And therefore, he crafted his book very carefully to accomplish his purpose. What is the purpose? Well, basically, Luke had two things that he wanted to accomplish. Above all else, he wanted the reader to know that it was God, the Holy Spirit, who was behind this history, this movement called Christianity. Christianity spread all over the world, not because of favorable circumstances or luck or events that were good, but because the Holy Spirit of God, under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, selectively and carefully orchestrated a movement that would forever change the course of the world and the course of history. There are, almost, there are 58 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, more than any other book of the Bible. This is slide number eight. The Holy Spirit speaks, he baptizes, he gives, he moves, he comforts, he encourages, he forbids, he prevents, he makes, he testifies. Those are all verbs that express what the Spirit of God does. And he did it in the book of Acts. He was very much the lifeblood of the church, literally. But Luke had a second thing that he wanted to accomplish. Luke wanted his readers to know something else besides the names and the places and events. He wanted them to know not only the why, but the where Christianity was headed. What was the direction the church was taking? Where was the church going? And who was it that was divinely appointed to take the church there? What man did God want to use to take the church in that direction? The bottom line is that Christ and his church were headed to the Gentiles. And it was the witness of the Apostle Paul according to Luke, who would supersede the original witness of the 12 apostles, Paul is whom God would use to take the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, when you and I sit down and we read, and this is slide number 9, when we read, when we read, number, uh, when we read Acts 1.8, well, let's start with the book itself. If you open up your Bible here to the 
the book of Acts, you'll find at the very top, it says, the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. Now, what basically is it speaking about? When I think about the Acts of the Apostles, I'm thinking about the 12 Apostles. Now, Matthias replaced Judas, so there were 12 in Acts chapter 1. Jesus says to them in Acts 1.8, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, when I read that, I expect to find that the book of Acts is going to be about the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, and that the people that God is going to use are the twelve apostles. They're the ones that were to be his witnesses in all of these places. But that isn't what you find when you read the book, is it? You come to, there's 28 chapters in the book, and you get to chapter 10 and 11, and suddenly it seems like the only apostle that is one of the original 12 was Peter. John is only mentioned once. He never speaks in the entire book of Acts. Peter is the only one that is speaking for the first 10 chapters as far as one of the 12 apostles is concerned. But by the end of the 11th chapter, Peter doesn't speak again, except as a, in a sort of a cameo appearance in chapter 15 when the church was trying to sort out its identity in relation to being either a Jewish or a Gentile church. And from chapter 12 on, you read about Paul, about his missionary journeys, about his ministry to the Gentiles. Acts begins with Peter preaching in Jerusalem. And it ends with Paul preaching in Rome. The parallelism is remarkable that Luke selected miracles that Peter did in the first ten chapters. And then he selected the various miracles that Paul did that were a mirror of what Peter did. Take a look at this in slide number 11. In Acts chapter 3, Peter healed a man lame from birth. In Acts 14, Paul healed a man lame from birth. In Acts chapter 5, Peter's shadow healed people. In Acts chapter 19, handkerchiefs and aprons from Paul healed people. In Acts chapter 5, the success of Peter caused the Jewish Jews to be jealous. In Acts chapter 13, success of Paul caused the Jewish people to be jealous. In Acts chapter 8, Peter dealt with Simon the sorcerer. In Acts chapter 13, Paul dealt with Bar-Jesus, a sorcerer. In Acts chapter 9, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead to life. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul raised Eutychius to life. Or Eutychus to life. You see the parallelism there? Clearly, Peter is trying, or Paul, or pardon me, Luke is trying to say one thing clearly. Yes, Peter was God's man in Acts chapters 1 to 10, 1 to 11, as the gospel spread from Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But as it moved forward from Acts 10 on, Peter, or Paul, became God's man to reach the Gentiles. The witness and ministry of the 12 disciples of Jesus is carefully planned and anticipated in chapter 1. 
But by chapter 12, their witness and ministry is no longer considered. In chapters 12 to 28, it is the ministry and witness of the Apostle Paul among the Gentiles that occupies Luke's attention and our attention. Sometime, something else that is very revealing is the witness of the twelve is emphatically connected in Acts with the experiences of our Lord on earth. The twelve disciples who became the twelve apostles lived with Jesus on this earth. And so their point of reference with Jesus was his earthly life. Whereas the witness of Paul is connected with the appearance of our Lord who had already ascended and was glorified in heaven. What Paul saw on the road to Damascus, none of the twelve ever saw. Do you think about that in in Acts chapter 1? You have the twelve disciples, and they see Jesus in his earthly body, resurrected body, I should say, but on this earth, going up out of their sight, and suddenly a cloud covered him, and he ascended into the heavens. It was Paul that saw him resurrected, seated at the right hand of God saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The twelve didn't see Jesus ascended. They saw him as their earthly master and Lord. Paul saw him ascended in heaven. Therefore, the witness of Paul is based on our Lord's earthly life, whereas the witness of the twelve disciples was based on his earthly life. Paul's witness was based on his heavenly life. I think I got that confused. What is Luke up to in the history of Christianity? The early Christian church. He wants us to focus on the change from Jew to Gentile. From the people who are primarily related to Christ on an earthly basis, the Jews, to those who are related to him on a heavenly basis, from Israel to the church. Let me show you something else here on uh, slide number 11, if I could get that one up there. Many people think the church began... Uh-oh. It doesn't show up. Well, that's the way it goes. It's too bad. If you can faintly see, there are lines, <clears throat> sort of like a, an arrow pointing that way and an arrow pointing that way. The idea here is, is that the... The church didn't just begin at 12.01 midnight on the day of Pentecost. It's not chilling up. (laughs) It's the way it goes. Don't worry about it. The point is, is that at 12.01 on the day of Pentecost, the church didn't just begin and Israel and the program God had for the Jew end. There was an overlap. Jesus, for instance, was teaching things about the church back when the Gospels were written with reference to his life on this earth. He said to Peter, upon this rock I shall build my church. He was speaking about church truth in his upper room discourse about the way Christians would relate to one another in the church. When you get over into the book of Acts, the first few chapters, the program for Israel is still winding down. We got part of it. 
but what we need is that the, the arrows, it, it, the slide won't make any sense without the, the arrows. The program for the Jew is winding down in the first part of Acts, just like the program for the church was winding up in the last part of his life on this earth. That's what we often miss. And what really happened is that our Lord taught many things about the church before the time that he left this earth and the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. On the other hand, our Lord's program for the Jew and the nation of Israel did not end abruptly at 1201 midnight. Remember, the gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And so our Lord commissioned 12 disciples who had been with him on earth to witness to the 12 tribes of Israel, that is, the Jewish nation. And then through them and beyond, he would reach the whole earth, after which he would then return to establish his kingdom, which was the Jewish hope. Now, this was the program that was presented in the early chapters of Acts that a lot of people miss. Just like in the Gospels, Jesus came what? At the beginning of the Gospels, he came preaching the kingdom of God saying the kingdom was near. And it was a program that if the Jews had accepted it, the king would have established the kingdom. But God in his sovereign decree went beyond that, knowing that they would reject the Messiah, permitting them to reject and put the Messiah to death, and that his death could become an atoning sacrifice, not only to cover the sins of Jews, but to cover the sins of Gentiles. The Jewish nation, just as they rejected Christ, now after only a few chapters into the book of Acts. Oh, I need that, huh? Thank you. You're really a good man. What is that? Oh, my. That looks like something I could actually drink. Good man. I don't know what's wrong with my voice these days. The Jewish nation, just as they, what happened? Oh, there we go. All right, now you're seeing a little bit more about it. Thank you guys for getting that for me. You'll notice that you've got the timeline right through the middle. Well, here's the program for the Jew, and the offer of the kingdom to the Jew is still being offered at the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. What did Peter preach? He said he's praying that they would repent, that the times of refreshing may come. And so you have the, the, the kingdom program winding down, Peter wasn't fully aware of what was going to happen. But then you have at the same time back in the Gospels, the church beginning to wind up. But the full-born, blown church truth doesn't really get underway until you've moved into chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And then all of a sudden it's beginning to become apparent that the, the church is going to be a Gentile church. That is very, very important. What this leaves us with is the effect of a, in effect, is a Gentile ministry. The witness to the Jew is dead beyond that point, effectively dead. Some Jews will believe and come to Christ, and they should be evangelized. But effectively, the nation itself wants nothing to do with it. The overwhelming, there is an overwhelming rejection of Jews to the gospel. But the witness to the Gentiles is very much alive. Gentiles are responding to the gospel message. The original 12 witnesses who are 12 precisely because they are linked to Israel fade from the picture. 
in favor of Paul. Christ trained 12 personally for their work, which has been rejected by the nation. But the man he stopped on the road of Damascus, on the way to Damascus, becomes the dominating personality in the history of the early church. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Whereas when the 12 apostles last saw Christ, he was received up into heaven and hidden by a cloud from their view. Paul saw him subsequently in his risen glory. It is our union as Gentiles with the glorified Savior and Jews who believe today. It's our union with the glorified Savior that became the heartbeat of the teaching of Paul's letters to the Gentile churches. Now let me just summarize what I've said because I know that it's hard to get all this together. If you look at the book of Acts, you're going to see we're going to start in Jerusalem. We're going to end in Rome. We're going to go from Peter to Paul. We're going to go from the 12 witnesses of our Lord's earthly life to one witness of his heavenly life. We're going to go from a people primarily related to him and an earthly hope to people united to him in his heavenly glory. We're going to go from Jew to Gentile. We're going to go from the nation of Israel to the, to the church itself. This is where our Lord, through the Holy Spirit, took his church, and it is where Luke wants to take his readers as well. Luke accomplishes this in a unique way. And like I mentioned, he really worked to plan out his book very effectively. And what he did is he created six movements in the book, like movements of a great symphony. Luke has written a symphony of the history of the early Christian church, helping us to experience both its power and its direction the power of the Holy Spirit, and the direction which was to the Gentiles. Each movement embodies approximately five years of church history. It's directly set off from the next movement by a concluding summary statement. That's how you know where these movements end and begin. He has a very concise way of making a summary statement that sort of ends the section. We'll look at those in just a moment. The first... And let me just come around and say this. Now, as you look at these six summary statements that conclude each movement, there's six movements, what you find is that these summaries give us the things that are most important to God when he looks at the church as a totality and when he looks at individual churches as well and when he looks at his people as well. These summary statements tell us what God uses to measure the church at any particular time in history, in any particular place in history or point in history. These verses provide the evidence that God is at work and that what was happening was by his design, not man's design. These are the indicators that we should seek today. And that's where I'm going. That's the practical fallout of this. I realize that this is a, this is a message that's got a lot of depth to it, but there's some very practical teaching here that I think will help as we bring this to a conclusion. So hang in there. Let's look at the movements themselves. The first movement goes from the very first verse of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6, verse 7. And in this movement, we see the 12 witnesses witnessing dynamically to Israel. And we see, as a result, a church established in Jerusalem. All this is taking place in chapter 2. And then we are left with these words in chapter 6, verse 7. Then the word of God spread 
And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's an interesting statement. The priests were obedient to the faith. He says, first of all, it spread. The word of God spread. More and more people, Jewish people at this point, were hearing and receiving the word of God. And as a result, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Disciples. What about disciples? He didn't talk about believers at this point in chapter 6, verse 7. He's talking about disciples. That's the summary. That's the key. Disciples. But now if you go, if you look at chapters 1 to 6, you'll find that there are four statements that are like, if you will, progress reports. And they were intended for the Jew. In fact, Peter was really into these progress reports. Let's take a look at those. And the point that Peter was looking for is, could this be the remnant of Jews who would call upon Messiah to return? Now, some of you that studied prophecy realize that when Jesus comes back, he comes back in response to the Jewish nation calling out to him to return and to save them from the terrible ordeal that they're experiencing during the time of the tribulation. Okay, Jesus returns in response to this remnant of Jews living in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, calling on Jesus to come back and deliver them from their terrible ordeal. Now, Peter, 2,000 years ago, right after the day of Pentecost... He began to see that when 3,000 souls, Acts 2.41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added, he began to think, could this be the remnant? In Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Could this be the remnant? It's growing. The faith is growing among the Jews. Could this be the Jewish remnant that will call upon the name of the Lord and He will return and bring in the times of refreshing promised in the Old Testament as a part of the kingdom age? In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, However, many of, these who, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now counting just the men, taking the original 3,000, adding two more thousand plus whatever men we're talking about, he comes up with 5,000. Men were the way they counted things in the Old Testament. And he's thinking, is this the remnant? Is this the remnant? We come to chapter 5, verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You notice in these progress reports, it's talking about believers, not disciples. Because the Jew would come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, And that would immediately put them in the position to call upon him to return. And so they were part of this ideal remnant that Peter and the 12 apostles kept thinking were living in this time. You get to chapter 3 and 4 and Peter's offering the kingdom. If they will but repent as a nation. We've already seen 5,000 plus conversions. If the rest of the nation will turn and turn to the Lord, the times of refreshing the kingdom will come. However, it didn't happen. 
the word of God spread and began to take root in the lives of many, many Jewish people. But the whole nation wasn't converted, as we'll see in a moment. Instead, what God's spirit was doing is he wasn't bringing about a remnant that was going to call upon the name of the Lord. He was bringing about disciples. It's about making disciples. That's where the heartbeat was of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in chapter 6, 7, that the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And even the priests obeyed, indicating that they were obeying the word as disciples of Jesus Christ. It was that effective that even the priests were obeying. That was the conclusion of the first movement. It really wasn't the remnant that they thought it would be to begin with that would be bringing in the kingdom. What it was was a number of Jewish believers who started the church in Jerusalem and who really believed and were becoming disciples and growing in their faith. The second movement continues from verse 6, chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 9, verse 31. And in this movement, the church has expanded beyond Jerusalem. However, the instrument that the Lord uses to force the church out from under the umbrella of Judaism, of the Jewish nation, is rejection and persecution. Hostility drives the gospel away from Jerusalem. Here the church was in Jerusalem. 5,000 people meeting in probably little house churches all over the city. And suddenly, the climate turned. Things got very hostile. The Jews who did not believe became very hostile and drove the church out of Jerusalem, so to speak. So that we read in chapter 8, verse 1, that they went, the church, the believers in Jerusalem and the disciples in Jerusalem went everywhere, went north into Syria, Antioch, preaching the gospel while the disciples remained in Jerusalem, the 12 disciples. Notice the summary statement there in chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches, plural, throughout all Judea and Galilee, And Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Churches. He's talking about churches now. Not individuals. He's talking about churches. All the regions around Jerusalem. He's saying that they enjoyed peace from persecution as they moved out from Jerusalem. They were edified. That is, those disciples who made up the church were being built up in the faith. Not only was the number of committed followers increasing, but the depth of character of those followers was getting deeper and stronger. They were walking. It says the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. The word walking here in our culture says, you know, we sort of a stroll. But in their culture, it meant to move with purpose, with determination. The church was moving with purpose and determination. It was moving ahead in the fear of the Lord, in the fear in the sense that they feared God and therefore they obeyed him. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, who comforted them in the midst of persecution. And the outcome is, they were multiplied. Listen to this, friends, carefully. They were multiplied, referring to the number of churches. The number of churches was multiplying. Not speaking about individuals. God the Holy Spirit does not produce lone wolf wolf Christianity. 
The local church is at the heart of his plan. Today we want bigger and more attractive churches. However, in the first century, when God's Spirit sought to produce was not simply bigger and better churches, he sought to produce stronger and more determined churches to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Size was irrelevant, truly immaterial to God. What God wants is a church strong enough to help in his plan to spawn other churches, other churches. The third movement continues from 932 to 1224. In this movement, we see the climax of Peter's apostleship. We see the Holy Spirit moving Peter to preach the gospel. This is sort of the last time he appears in the book. He preaches the gospel to a Gentile. And remember, he preached the gospel to the Jew, to the Samaritan, and now to a Gentile. And the Gentile's name is Cornelius. And through Peter's preaching to Cornelius, the door is now open to Gentiles. Just as he did to the Jews in chapter 2, showing that both Jew and Gentile were part of the same church. That's why Peter preached to both to begin with. He preached to the Jew, and then he preached to Cornelius, the first Gentile. That basically said there's no difference between Jew and Gentile in the church. Both were received. How was the word received among the Gentiles? Look at the summary statement in verse 24 of chapter 12. But the word of God grew and multiplied. The word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 9:32 to 12:24. The word of God grew. It grew in Jerusalem, yes. Then it grew in Samaria, yes. And in Galilee, yes. And it multiplied finally among the Gentiles, yes. Notice the parallelism with the first summary. In chapter 6, verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The word of God is spreading. The word of God is growing, and it's multiplying. That's the critical key. The fourth movement goes from chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 16, verse 5. And in this movement, Paul's apostleship is fully established among all the churches from Jerusalem to Antioch. Keep in mind, to begin with, they were really skeptical about Paul. After all, he would have had their head a few years before. He was persecuting the church himself. But once his testimony and his ministry was clearly one in which God was blessing, then the, the, the test became one of establishing that with all the churches. Now, it's interesting, in chapter 15, the church briefly struggled with its identity. Was it a Jewish church or a Gentile church? Well, in God's book, it was both. It was really one church which identified with neither completely. But it was a place where both Jew and Gentile were welcome to be part of one body. And then we read in 16.5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. The point is, is that while the leadership was tied up debating the identity of the church, God's Holy Spirit continues to build the church. That's the key. Then the churches were strengthened in the faith, and the churches increased in number daily. Speaking about the number of churches, and probably keep in mind, these were house churches, courtyard churches, small groupings of Christians who came together to break the Lord's, to have the Lord's table, to, to preach, to teach, to learn the Word of God. And that was the effective way that it was done. That doesn't say that that's the way it should be done, but that's the way it was done in that part of the, in that time and in that place. 
But the number of churches was increasing, and that was the important thing. In Acts chapter 9, 31, notice the parallelism. The churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, and they were multiplied. Well, now you have the churches spreading among the Gentiles, and they were multiplying as well. And we come to the fifth movement, continues from chapter 6, 16, verse 6 to 19, 20. And in this movement, God, the Holy Spirit, sovereignly directs and sustains the missionary work of the Apostle Paul among the Gentiles. And the outcome is a Gentile world that is turned upside down. And Gentile churches are sprouting up everywhere. Everywhere you go, there's a new church. A church on every block. Always to the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul now, instead of Peter, had become the sower of the word. Obviously, Peter continued to sow. But in Luke's history, he is focused on Paul and Paul's sowing of the word to the Gentiles. And the word continued to prosper. Notice the summary statement in 1920. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And, of course, the parallel statements that we looked at earlier in John 6 or Acts 6 and Acts 12. Paul's point is simply just Peter's, Paul's ministry is just as effective as Peter's. Next, we come to the sixth movement. And the sixth movement continues from chapter 1921 to the end of the book. It's the longest of the six movements showing clearly the importance that Luke placed on this movement in the history and spread of the Christian church. In the sixth movement, the witness of the ascended and glorified Christ is carried to Rome. And after discouragement, an attempt upon his life in Jerusalem, appearances before judges and magistrates, along with a recounting of the Damascus Road experience two times and a very difficult and dangerous journey over the seas, finally you find Paul in Rome preaching the gospel. As one commentator put it, Paul is God's man, whether he's in Jerusalem or in Rome. Interesting that that last part of that movement, he starts in Jerusalem, which he was predicted that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem because he would be bound, which he was. But in God's plan, it was all part of the plan to get Rome to pay his expenses for a free trip to Rome. So he would end up in Rome. And notice the summary statement. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And you say, well, where's the summary here? Where's the end? That's it, friends. It doesn't end. It doesn't end. It's exactly that. He's in Rome, and from there, all roads lead out of Rome to the four corners of the earth. Paul we see the apostle to the Gentiles is in Rome, the center of Gentile power and culture, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching, teaching the things concerning Jesus Christ. From this point, the sowing of the word and the establishing of churches would spread and multiply all over the world. However, this is no guarantee from God, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is under the direction that the Holy Spirit is equally at work in every age, in every place, in every nation, in every community, in every time. The Dark Ages, for instance, which we 
all look back on as a dark time because of ignorance. But they weren't dark just because of their ignorance. They were dark primarily because the Holy Spirit withdrew his presence and power in the established church of the Dark Ages, which had become like a harlot full of immorality and corruption. The widespread spiritual deadness of the 16th and 17th centuries following the Reformation in which people were more into the splitting the hairs of doctrine, so to speak, and it killed the spirit and it made it difficult for the work to go forward. And so the the spirit of God brought about a great awakening in the 18th and 19th centuries that we still share in some today. Interesting, the German rationalism of the 19th century left Europe as a region dead to the truth of God's word to this very day. You don't find missionaries succeeding very well in France or in Germany. There are some there, but it is a tough area. But what about our day? What about North America? What about Southern California? Is God at work in this part of the world in this particular way? Is this sort of a mini golden age of the church What about the exciting numbers of converts we are seeing all over the world as well as here in North America? What about the signs and wonders that are being done today in the name of Jesus Christ? What about the return to a less formal and more freer style of worship? What about the things that seem to signal that the Holy Spirit is at work perhaps bringing about a revival unlike the world has never seen in the church today? As one analysis puts it, are these things surely telling us that the golden age of the church is upon us, that it has arrived? Go back with me just a moment and look again at those six summary statements. Summaries that marked each movement or period of time in the churches during that period of time. And that said, in essence, that the Spirit of God is at work in this period of time and in these churches spreading the word of God all over the ancient world. Look with me again at those indicators that rise above the flourishing activity of the early church and say clearly, God is prospering his church. Take stock as God takes stock. Measure as God measures. Let's take a look at this. The six summary statements together. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Chapter 9. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Chapter 12. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Chapter 16. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Chapter 19. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit... When he had passed through Macedonia, he to go to Jerome. I got the wrong verse there. And then Acts 28, 30, and 31. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now notice that there are four indicators here that the Holy Spirit is at work. Now we may think, well, it's the signs and wonders. It's the size, the numbers of people that are being converted. It's the uh, excitement in the air. It's all of those things. It's not. Notice the four things that God focuses on in these summary statements. Number one, first, is the word of God spreading 
growing, multiplying, and prevailing in the lives of the people. Is that true today, friends? Is the Word of God spreading, growing, multiplying, and prevailing in the lives of people in this nation, in North America, in civilized Christianity around the world today? I find these to be times of great biblical illiteracy. Preaching today is terribly difficult because people are not well taught. I'm not speaking about our church. I'm speaking in generalities. Bible studies are surface. We sit around and want to know what everybody thinks about a particular verse of Scripture instead of what God says and what it means to God. First is the Word of God spreading, growing, multiplying, and prevailing. Second, are disciples being multiplied? Not good people being multiplied, not church attenders being multiplied, not even believers being multiplied, but are disciples being multiplied? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Disciples are learners. They're followers of the exalted and glorified Christ. And it begins with baptism and continues with a life of obedience and submission to Christ and to His Lordship. Third, are churches being edified and multiplied? Those who make churches, are, are they being strengthened, edified, built up in the faith so that their character is being transformed? Are the number of churches increasing? Many churches today are closing. Today, churches are not strong, and they break apart, it seems, at a whim's notice. There's too much apathy, too much disinterest. Fourth, is the kingdom being preached and the things of Christ being taught? Is the kingdom being preached and the word of things about Christ being taught? We're going to talk more about the kingdom thinking next week, but... Obviously, in the mind of a person who's a disciple, he looks forward to the kingdom because he shall reign with Christ. He enters the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. But he will participate in the kingdom and inherit the kingdom and reign in the kingdom through faithfulness and obedience. Is this the kingdom that we're preaching? And are we preaching the things concerning Jesus Christ? We can preach a lot of things. We can tell people how to improve their lives. We can talk about all kinds of problems that we face as human beings. But friends, God wants us to focus on Jesus Christ. I'll be honest. I don't believe we're living on the verge or in the golden age of the church. I believe we are on the verge or perhaps in the age of the church of Laodicea. The Laodicean age, as some have called it. The Laodicean age. Look at Revelation chapter 20. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. 
and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, and that your shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcome, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A number of years ago, there was a famous painting of Jesus knocking on the door of the U.N., and of course, in that period of time, most of us as believers long to see more justice and equity and, and uh, spiritual godliness in the nations of this world as we do today. But friends, Jesus isn't knocking on the door of the UN. He's knocking on the door of the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the door is the door of the church at Laodicea. And that church, if you study the book of Revelation and the churches of Revelation carefully, you will find that that church is a church that is a, a type, an illustration of the church that will exist in the last days. The age of the Laodicean church is the church that will exist just before Jesus returns to this earth. It's the seventh and final church Jesus spoke of. He had something to say to each church, and for all but one church, the church at Philadelphia and the church at Sardis, there was a rebuke. Many believe, as I do, that the Laodicean church is a, is a church used to distinguish the times that will exist in the church before the end. I believe we may well be living in that time. This is the church Jesus is effectively outside knocking on the door. A church where few people seem to hear him knocking. A church in which the people are caught up in themselves and the world in which they live. Ross Rhodes highlights the mindset of what he calls the postmodern church. It could just as easily be called the mindset of the church of Laodicea. Let me read just a few of these to you. This is what the people inside think. I am looking for the truth that works for me. I can only try to see life from my own perspective. Reality is too complex to understand it all. I'm interested in the values of my group and my community. I believe in being tolerant. I believe in letting others live like they want to. I don't like it when people argue about how the group or beliefs are better. I want practical answers to life. I'm not drawn to idealistic schemes. I'm suspicious of schemes that try to explain everything or give simplistic answers to some complex questions. When people talk to me about these schemes, I think of it as noise to be ignored. I like to have a group of close friends with which I share common values. I do have a vague desire for non-institutional spirituality, but I don't know how to find it. It could easily be the church of Laodicea. Where's the Laodicean church headed? So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Friends, here is the first century church of Laodicea. Take a look at it on the screen here. It's slide 24 or 25. 
That's the church of Laodicea that existed 2,000 years ago. It's in ruins today. The whole city's in ruins. The Laodicean church is gone. And friends, one day the Laodicean church age that we may very well be a part of will be gone as well and in ruins. But we must not lose heart because we live in an age of the Laodicean church. Jesus makes a promise to all his people living during this age. This is what he says. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent. As a church, we need to be zealous. We need to be excited about the things of God. We need to get some fire in our hearts. And then he says, repent. If you're part of the Laodicean way of thinking, repent of that. Turn away from it. Don't let it take you. To repent means to turn away. To turn around and forsake the the path that we were on because it leads the wrong direction. Let me give you an illustration. This is a hard one to give. But it's important. I was talking with Sandy Deaver about Iwana. I guess they're down in numbers this year. I wonder why a number of our own people aren't coming. I wonder what it is. Is it soccer? Is it gymnastics? Is it housework or homework? I don't know. But if it is, and we let these things begin to to interfere with what God is doing in lives. You see, a program like Awana, Awana, where we're instilling within children the principles of God's Word, how important that is. And our world says, oh, it's not important. We just need to love Jesus and everybody can just go and do whatever they want. That's a lie. We need to come back and get to get our act together. Everything isn't always right, friends. But beyond this, and there are other illustrations that I'm not going to go into, but this one concerns me, among many others. Then Jesus appeals to individuals. First he appeals to the church, says repent. If you're in it, repent, turn around. But then he appeals to that individual and he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. What in the world does he want to have dinner with me for in the midst of a situation like this? Because in the biblical context, to have dinner with someone, to break bread with someone, was a time of great intimacy, special time of being close together. And he's saying, I stand at the door and knock and I want to be intimate with you. I want to be close to you. And then he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant for him to sit on my throne as I overcame and sat on my father's throne, reigning with Christ. It begins with repentance. It becomes part of of our intimacy with Christ leads to being able to understand the mind and heart of Christ and therefore to be obedient to Him to the nth degree and to reign with Him. And of course, a lot of people are thinking, I'm not getting it. 
And that's true. Jesus says in verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I trust that in this church most of us do get it. And I hope and pray that I get it. I mean, I, I see things in my own life that trouble me. And I've, I'm coming to a point where I'm thinking, I need to get my act together here. You just can't go on and on and on and pretend that everything's okay. At some point, you've got to do a check and say, attitude's wrong, what I'm doing's wrong, what I'm saying's wrong. We've got to come back. We don't want to be part of the church of Laodicea. It's not the golden age of the church. Let's pray. Father.